Hey, good to see you guys. I didn't wear my watch tonight. Yeah, so let that be a warning. Father, I thank you for the unspeakable gift of your son. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God, and what you do is good. We give you the glory and the honor and the praise that you deserve. We ask that tonight, Lord, as we look and study your scriptures, we pray that you would use them, that your spirit would hover over the water of the word and be transforming us to be better reflectors of your image and glory. Lord, that you would sand us a little tonight so we could leave here with more of you being revealed in us and through us. So have your way. Have your good and right way with us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ezekiel. I'll begin with a quote from Martin Luther. 500 years ago, this is what that very learned, smart, spark plug of the Protestant Reformation, this is what he says about the prophets. Quote, they, the prophets, have a queer way of talking, <laughs> like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at, end quote. <laughs> I think he just read Ezekiel. If you've read these books, you probably agree with him. And here's the reason. The number one problem with reading the prophets is this. They assume too much. They assume something about their readers and they're assuming way too much. It'd be like this. We had a meeting yesterday and in this meeting, we were writing out kind of these things that we wanted for this group of people. And so like number one was love Jesus, and number two was have a heart to serve, and number three was, you know, be ready, and we're writing verses by each one. And then we were down to number six, and I wrote on number six, I said, here's what I want. I want eschatological authenticity, <laughs> to which one of the guys just raised his hand and said, would you use words like the and of instead of those words? Right? I was assuming too much. Well, that's what happens with the prophets. The prophets assume something, and here's what they assume. They assume you have read and you know this whole book. That's what they're just assuming. They're assuming that you are drenched in Torah, that you have studied it and possibly memorized it, and that you know it. They're assuming that you are dunked into 600 BC culture. And so they just assume all those things as they're writing. And that makes it hard. I'll try to explain it like this. There's an emerging culture right now. And it's this culture that texts, the text messaging culture. Now, if, if you've studied text messaging linguistically, I won't even use that word. People that study language are, are marveling at it because here's why. Texting is something you, you very unique. There's a conversation language we have, right, where we talk. And then there's a writing language where, where the way that people write is very different than the way that we talk, right? They're very different. But for the first time, we're having this language where those two are melting together. Texting is writing a conversation, so it's crazy, right? 
You have these terms in there that, that if you took somebody just 16 years ago, the year 2000, and you brought them into today and you handed them a 14-year-old's phone and said, read these texts, would they be able to make heads or tails of what they're saying? No, LOL, what, lol, lol? What's lol? JK, what's JK? Slash, do you guys know what slash is? Who knows what slash is? And it has nothing to do with Guns N' Roses, all right? It's nothing to do with him. Here's what slash is. In a normal, so, so you have that blending of these two in a, in a conversation that you're having with somebody, we have these ways that we do things. So if we want to change the subject, someone's like rambling on and on and on and on and on and on, and we want to like interject something or change, we'll, we'll do something like, hmm, my, that's interesting. However, <laughs> what did I do right there? I said, I don't want to hear you anymore. I want to start talking about what I want to talk about. Or my, that makes me think, but I'm, I've, I've changed directions. Well, how do you do that in texting? Well, that's what slash is. It is a way that you write out slash and then you can go just jump to a completely different conversation. So imagine a guy just 16 years ago coming, LOL, slash, JK, oh, they'd be lost. Okay, multiply that same thing now by 2,500 years. That's the prophet's. So when you're reading them, there's this LOL, JK, slash today. And what happens too often is what we do is we take 2016 America and then we press it right on top of the prophets and we expect that somehow that's going to make sense. And so we look at LOL and we're like, must, be, must mean lol, must be a guy. Let's make that a guy. His name is Lowell. Okay, so Lowell is a guy. That's what starts to happen. And you get this really kind of nutty thing that begins to emerge from the prophets. And you get guys like Martin Luther just saying, this is crazy. This, this is crazy talk, okay? So what you have to do is you have to immerse yourself a bit in this big story that is the Bible. Because Ezekiel is just gonna assume you know the story. And Ezekiel is very interesting. He comes almost smack dab in the middle of God's story in the Bible. That's about where he's at. He's just right in the middle of this thing. And so he's in this unique kind of, um, it's a pivotal point in history in the big story of the Bible. So here's what we're gonna do. Is I'm gonna parallel a little bit of Sunday. That's why I, I, part of why I chose Ezekiel and the King Me series is they actually parallel a little bit. So I don't know if you're here on Sunday, but I'm going to recap a bit and build on kind of what we are talking about on Sunday. So we're going to fly over from Genesis essentially to Ezekiel really quick. So you get this foundation that Ezekiel is going to assume that we know. If you don't get it, you'll miss it. Okay. So remember on Sunday, I said Genesis 1 through 11, what happens there? God creates, and he creates this really good place. And, and, and he creates these one people, this one group. He calls them Adam, or it's humanity. And he makes them image bearers. And the image bearing is, be like me on earth. What I do in the cosmos, you guys do the same thing down here. Image bear me, look like me. I want you to flourish, so I'm gonna give you responsibility. I'm gonna give you power. I'm gonna give you dominion. I'm gonna give you creativity. I'm gonna give you creativity. I'm gonna give you myself. Adam, I'm gonna give you a wife. And you're gonna look at her and you go, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, right? It's good, it's like brilliantly beautiful. But then what happens? Genesis 3, rebellion. Genesis 4, murder. Genesis 6, wickedness. Genesis 9, drunkenness and nakedness. Genesis 11, crescendos to Babylon. Babylon in the Bible, in Bible lingo, Babylon is everything that's evil. It's the worst city in history. So when Babylon gets introduced in Genesis 11, it's really saying evil has crescendoed to the point that it is now firmly implanted on earth. And so God does something at that point. It's like he starts a second plot. 
It's like the, the, the camera pans away from evil and pans over on this dude named Abraham. And it's like God says, okay, there's this cycle over here. I'm going to start a system, an antidote to chapters 1 through 11. And this antidote is going to be this guy. His name is Abraham. And through him, I am going to restore what's been lost. I'm going to bring back in a blessing through him. Through him, he's going to have offspring like the stars in the sky. Now, what's that a hint of? It's not Mormons. It's something else, right? What's the original mandate? Be fruitful and multiply. So, so you see all these things are tying right back in. Genesis 1 is reflected back in through Abraham. You're going to have a bunch of kids because that's my original mandate. It's going to come through you. And then he does not forget 1 through 11, the other nations. He says, and in you, the final thing is in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. So there's this reboot, if you would, and it reboots to this guy named Abraham. And then, you know, the story, story goes on, goes on. And there's another covenant that's huge in the Bible. That's the Abrahamic covenant. But the, what's the next covenant that comes on? It's called the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant is Ezekiel's wheelhouse. He loves the Mosaic covenant. It's what he has saturated himself in, and we'll see why. Isaiah is an Abrahamic covenant guy and a Davidic covenant guy. Ezekiel, his thing is Mosaic covenant over and over and over. So what's the Mosaic covenant? I hinted at it on Sunday. It's Exodus 19, where God calls his people, brings them out of Egypt, and he says, here's what I want you guys to be. Verse nine, verse six, Exodus 19. I want you to be a kingdom of priests. Now, what is that? You guys, priests are this, they're just image bearers. You image bear me back to the nations. God's not forgetting the other nations. You image bear me to all these other people. And the nations, whenever you see the nations in the Bible, it's always referring to Genesis 10, which is called the table of nations. Guess how many nations there are in Genesis 10? There's 70. When you see the number 70 throughout the Old Testament, it is always, almost always, it is almost always referring back to something about those nations, the 70 nations, the Gentile nations of Genesis 10. So what you see is Abraham, hey, through you, there's gonna come a blessing. And God originally says, I want it coming through this nation called Israel. You guys reflect my image, be my priests, be a kingdom of priests, reflecting to the 70 nations again, who I am, my glory. What happens when people believe in me? So that's the Mosaic covenant. So flip forward, if you would, backwards, if you're in Ezekiel, to chapter 26 of, Ezekiel, of Exodus. Very, very important text. Chapter 24, excuse me. Very important text. This is the Mosaic covenant, where it goes to because of some things that happen, which is a different story. But these are key chapters for Ezekiel. Chapter 24, verse 1. This is going to come up. I call this the marriage. And Ezekiel plays on this so much. Read chapter 16, read chapter 23. He plays, centers in on this. So listen to this. Exodus 24. Then he, this is God, said to Moses, come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Who are these guys? Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. Priests, reflectors of God. And 70 of the elders of Israel. Notice that number again. It's, I haven't forgotten about the blessing of these other nations. Bring those other guys as well. They're to be reflectors back out. Jesus in Luke chapter 10, he sends out how many people? 70 disciples. Some translations say 72, 70 is the right number. 
It's Jesus in Luke chapter 10 saying, my mission is also to the nations, not just to Israel. That's why that number 70 is picked. And 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to Yahweh, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Are you sure? (laughs) And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. The whole blood thing there is Ezekiel 36. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What do you think about that? If you're a Christian, if you're Jewish, you should look at verse 10 and be like, what? They saw God? I thought that was impossible, right? In your brain right now, you should be saying, what in the world? You can't see God and live, but what does that verse just say? They saw God, and then verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. What? (laughs) The Bible is confusing. Why is it saying this? It should make your head spin because this is breaking all the rules. Wait a second, this is breaking all the rules. What is this? To me, skipping that part, (laughs) this is the wedding. It's the wedding. They say, essentially, verse number seven, I do. I do. God, you're covenant with us. We're covenant like a marriage. It's the way Ezekiel's gonna frame the whole thing. We're covering like a marriage and we just said, I do. Now, what happens in a marriage after you say, I do? Not that. Okay, back up one step. You have a wedding feast, right? What do they have with Yahweh on the mountain? They eat and drink. There's a wedding feast. This is a picture of a wedding. Mount Sinai becomes a temple where there's a covenant of marriage. God meets with man and they have a meal together and eat, breaking every rule. That's what just happened right there. Does this remind you of anyone else? It should remind you of Jesus. Because the gospels, you can summarize the gospels as Jesus eating with all the wrong people. That's the gospels. How many times did Jesus eat, breaking all the rules, eat with the wrong people? Over and over and over again, right? Zacchaeus up in a tree. Jesus walks up to him, hey bro, you're a tax collector. Let's have dinner tonight. Let's eat together. Man, that's breaking the rules. Number one, he's, 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 he ends up inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house. He's like, bro, I'm homeless and penniless and you're a tax collector and a thief, so I know you got cash. Let's eat at your house. Let's go to your house for dinner. Right? He just breaks all the rules, constantly eating with the wrong people. This is the wedding. This is the I do. Let's covenant together. Now, who do they see here? You can ask all those questions if you want to. I believe they see Jesus. I believe they see God the Son, the incarnate one. So that's who they see. It's Jesus, like pre-incarnate. Go wherever you want with that, right? But what happens next? It's it's a wedding. What's the next thing you need after you get married? You need a house. 
What happens next in the story? Build me a tabernacle, right? Build me a house. Flip forward to chapter 29. There's all these directions, all this tabernacle stuff, this tent of meeting. Chapter 29, verse 43, to make it fast. He gives all these directions and he says this, verse 43, God speaking. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it, the tabernacle, shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. What happens now? God moves in. That's what he does. You can read the end of Ezekiel, of Exodus if you want to, chapter 40. God moves in, right? Gets married, chapter 24, and then he moves in. Which I, I can't resist saying this. If you're single here, that's the right order, right? You get married, and then you move in together. You want to be godly? That's the way God does it. Let's covenant together and then build me a house, and let's move in together. If you want to do it like an image bearer of God, that's the way God just did it, okay? It's commit, then celebrate. That's godly, okay? So that's what God does. Let's get married. Now, this is a theme throughout the book of Ezekiel. He just uses this, uses this, because of what happens next. God moves in, wedding night, awesome. What happens next? Adultery, chapter 32. That's what happens next. Just imagine that. Imagine you get married and on your wedding night, your spouse goes out and visits a prostitute. What would you do? Don't say it out loud because NSA listens through your phone and it'll be recorded. We know what we do. God's angry, right? I can't believe you have done this to me. What are we seeing here? Genesis 1 through 11 again. God blessing, creativity, giving, loving, kindness. Then chapter three, again, rebellion. What? Really? You can do that to me? But it's even worse this time because God is so invested in them. I saved you out of Egypt. I bore you on eagles' wings. I'm keeping you. I've fed you. I've defended you. You're my people. I've covenanted to you. And you, what? 10 signs I've given to you. With a mighty arm, I rescued you. What? How could you do this to me? So Hosea, one of the marks of the Hosea is this. Because you were my first, because you were my choice, because you were my highest, you get judged first. Which is a New Testament theme, by the way. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Because you were first, you get judged hardest. So chapter 34, there's a renewal of covenant. But even in the renewal of this covenant, there's this dark kind of cloud over it, right? It's forbearing, it's foreshadowing, kind of like, uh-oh, one of these covenant partners is not very good. One of these covenant partners is going to fail. And so that shadow actually looms over the rest of the Torah, right? And there are two key texts that I think Ezekiel has memorized and they come out all the time. And the texts are Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 through 31. For the sake of time, turn to Leviticus 26. Let me just read it for you. Not the whole thing. This dark cloud that's over this marriage now, this dark cloud, listen to how God begins to put it. Verse 14, Leviticus 26. He begins to warn them, hey, you already have showed me that there's some issues. So now I'm gonna warn you. Verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commands, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemy shall eat it. 
I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Not fun, but he goes on. Then, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue to strike you sevenfold for your sins. Verse 23, And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Verse 27, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sin. It just goes on and on and on and on. So Ezekiel knows this. He's read this, saturated himself in this, and it comes through. And it is highly depressing. But if you want to read an even more depressing account of this, read Deuteronomy 27 through 31, because it's like 10 times more. It's incredibly depressing. But there's this flicker at the end. There's hope. Look down at verse 44. So he just goes on, just like I did. It gets seven times worse worse from, hey, this is going to happen. I'm going to strike you. I'm going to have fury against you. Just, whoa. But then verse 44. Yet, for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am Yahweh their God. But I, for their sake, will remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am Yahweh. There's this flicker. Hope. There's still hope. There's still hope. And so Sunday, we ended with Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which actually is less hope. Like, it's not just, hey, listen to me and do these things. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it's saying this, unless there's radical heart surgery, we're not going to ever get out of Genesis 1 through 11, right? It's like there's less hope in Deuteronomy 30 than there is here. Now, why is that? Why is Deuteronomy less hopeful than Leviticus? Any guesses? The book of Numbers, read it, because it's more depressing. What happens in Numbers, right? They start complaining about the menu. God is feeding them in the desert where there's nothing to eat. You die in the desert. And God, every morning, what does he do? Manna, I'm gonna take care of you. And what do they say? We're tired of manna. So then God sends them this flock of quail and they eat, right? They eat and they eat and they gorge themselves until guess what happens? The meat comes out their nose. I have five kids. I've seen all kinds of things come out of noses. Pepsi, milk, I have never seen meat. I mean, that would be epic. And God is mad. He's like, are are you serious? You're going to be gluttons? Oh, so God's furious. And then you have the 12 spies. They go into the land. God has promised them, I'm going to give you this land. 10 spies come back with what? An evil report. Why? They're too tall. That's the evil report. You know, God, if they were 6'4", you could take them. But they're 6'6", 250. There's no way, God, they're just too tall. And so God's like, are you kidding me? After all I have done, I have fed you every single day. And you're telling me I can't take out these people? Oh, right? That happens. Then right after that, what happens? Korah, Dathan, and Abiram fire Moses, hire us. And they get the entire crew all riled up so that an earthquake opens and 250 people fall into this earthquake and it closes on top of them. That's a bummer. And then they start kind of getting that in them. Let's fire Moses. So then God sends these fiery serpents. A bunch of people die. It just goes on and on. Balaam comes, prostitutes come. Just it's, you read numbers and you're just depressed. Like it's even worse than we thought. 
We thought it was just Genesis 1 through 11 bad. They're even worse. So the end of Deuteronomy is, unless there's this radical, unbelievable heart surgery, it's not gonna work. And you just keep reading the Bible, right? Joshua's not bad, it's pretty good. There's the Achan event and some, some bad stuff in there. They make some mistakes, but it's kind of okay. But then Judges is what? Horrible. Over and over, it's because they did not have a king in their midst. It just gets, everyone does what's right in their own sight. You do what's right in your own sight, it gets ugly. Read Judges. We need order. We need some structure. When you just do what's right in your own sight, look out. It gets ugly. I would rather read Song of Solomon to a five-year-old than the book of Judges. He kissed me with the kisses of his lips. I'll explain that. I will not explain Judges 17. Brutal. Right, then you get into Samuel. Samuel's a good guy. What about his sons? Terrible, right? They start prostitution at the temple. Like, oh, you guys are horrible. David and, and Solomon are like a mixed bag, kind of, oh, they're kind of good, but Solomon, oh, man, he's got some issues, got a lady issue and other problems. And he ends up turning over a broken kingdom to a fool of a son who loses the 10 tribes. And the whole nation is divided. God's perfect people are supposed to be in unity and loving each other and helping each other, serving each other, where they end up hating each other and fighting each other. Like it's gross. The 10 other tribes are so bad that God just says, okay, I'm done with them. And the Assyrians come down and wipe them out. And then the, the, the two northern tribes that come together, Judah and Benjamin, they last about 100 years more. That happened in 722 BC. By 600 BC, Babylon comes wipes them out. And in 6598, approximately, they take these guys, Ezekiel is one of them, and they take them back over to Babylon and they plop them down. And that's where we pick up the story. So that's the lingo, that's the culture that Ezekiel is going to be building on, that right there. These cycles, these covenants, these promises, this marriage that's been broken. He's going to he's going to cycle back around through these things over and over and over again. All right? So Ezekiel chapter one, verse one. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of Yahweh came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chebar Canal and the hand of Yahweh was upon him there. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? <laughs> It's like, what? All right. So let me try to explain this. This right here is the climax of the sinful cycles of Israel. Okay? You've sinned over and over and over again. And now the very land that I consider to be sacred is going to vomit you out across the desert to the worst place possible called Babylon. And it uses some lingo in here in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month. What is all that? What are all these dates for? Most scholars, and I agree with them, believe this is Ezekiel's birthday, his 30th birthday. What a bummer, huh? On your 30th birthday, to be by this canal. Now think, don't think like Applegate River or the Rogue River or the Illy. If you've ever been to a third world country and been by a canal, think that, okay? This canal would be coming from Babylon, going through a refugee camp and exiting out of it. What would it have in it? Yeah, it would stink, right? It'd be gross. So he's there by this nasty canal on his birthday outside of a refugee camp where he has been exiled from the land he's supposed to live in, it's a bummer of a birthday. We get bummed out because our ice cream cake melts too fast. He's bummed and here's 
really why. It says, Ezekiel, the priest. What happens on your 30th birthday when you're a priest? I'll read it for you. It's Numbers 4. Verse 1, Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their father's houses. From 30 years old up to 50 years old, all who can come on duty to do the work of the tent of meeting. What happens when you're 30 and you're a priest? You start your career. Time to start. Time to be a priest. Time to go. So Ezekiel, for his whole childhood, had been studying the Torah, studying the priesthood, was excited about it all, was looking forward to the chance that he would have the opportunity to step into this position. His dream, his career, what he was born to be, literally what he was born to be. But instead, for sins that he did not commit, sins that people he didn't even know had committed, Instead of him doing that, he's in exile by a stinky refugee camp canal as a slave to an evil empire called Babylon. Happy birthday, Ezekiel. (laughs) That's what just happened in these verses. Ezekiel is rock bottom. He's by this stinky canal because he's rock bottom. God, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Why am I here? Why has this happened to me? I didn't do anything to deserve this. Are you kidding me? Does it resonate with you at all? Has it ever happened to you? Dreams, desires, dashed, hope you had for something gone? Hope for a marriage. Hope for your kids. Hope for our country. Hope for our future. Hope for finances to finally get figured out. And you're sitting there wondering, God, what next? This seems unfair. Are you kidding me? Every one of us should be able to say, yeah. If you're not, your Chibar Canal is coming. It comes for every single person. (laughs) It's coming, right? That's what happened right here. 30th birthday by this canal outside of a refugee camp near the most evil city in the world. Every hope, dream, desire he had dashed. But then, what happens? What happens? Who shows up? God. In the most evil place imaginable. Who shows up? God does, right? Twice. To make it really clear. It's almost like, and I don't know, it's almost like, Ezekiel writes verse one, and it's almost like a narrator, because if you know Jeremiah, Jeremiah had a Baruch, the scribe who who wrote for him. It's almost like a a scribe adds in, like, this is it, man. The hand of Yahweh was on him there. I knew it. I'm his buddy. I saw it. It's almost like somebody, like, like you have a second voice coming in and saying, yeah, it's amazing. His rock bottom worst day ever. I saw visions of God. The hand of Yahweh was upon him there. Hope is kindled. In his darkest, worst moment ever, Ezekiel has hope kindle. Yahweh shows up. So we have this theme in the Bible we've seen, failure on humanity, right? Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 6, Genesis 9, Genesis 11, Abraham lying, Abraham with Hagar. I mean, you're just going on and on and on, right? There's all this failure. But there's another theme that's woven right on top of that. And the theme is what we see right here in verse three. Yahweh's there. That's the other theme. And you can see it all the time. Just read your Bible. Jacob, his lowest point. He lies, steals, takes from his brother Esau, lies to his dad, deceives. Esau's like, I'm gonna kill you. Jacob runs away, right? And as he's running in Genesis 28, he sleeps in this most barren place possible with a rock as a pillow 
And that night, guess what happens? Yahweh shows up. And he wakes up in the morning, verse 17, he goes, this place is awesome. Literally, that's, that's what my ESV says. This place is awesome. I did not know God was in this place. The most dark point in his life, because he knew sometimes brothers kill brothers, right? It's in the story that he knew about. Genesis 4, like Esau could kill me. And Esau is a crazy man anyways. He's Chewbacca of the Bible, right? You got Chewbacca wanting to kill you. You got serious issues. But at that dark, horrible moment, Yahweh shows up. Moses, fugitive in the desert because of premeditated murder, right? He's a bad guy who shows up. Yahweh in a burning bush. Elijah, Elijah, suicidal. God, just kill me because this queen named Jezebel wants to kill me. Why don't you just do it instead? Kill me. In a cave of depression and guess who shows up? Yahweh. See, that's the other theme. You got this, yeah, failure, failure, failure theme, but written right over the top of it is God shows up in the darkest, worst points possible. On your birthday, in exile, when every dream you ever had is being dashed by a stinky canal. It's beautiful. Just three verses, just beautiful. So let me read for you something really quick. It's what God says about the desert time for Israel. When they went through a dark time, when everybody knew this, we're we're in a walking death sentence. This is what God says about that time. It's Deuteronomy 8. The whole commandment that I commanded you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that Yahweh swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the way that Yahweh, your father, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and did not, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Who quotes that text? Where was he at when he quoted it? Yeah, in the desert. Your clothing did not wear out and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart, God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandment of Yahweh your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. God says, hey, the 40 years of of hard stuff and dark times, they had a purpose. I want you to know some things. I want to know your heart. I want you to know my word. I want you to know some things about me that I'm going to take care of you. That's why. See, hard times, here's what hard times are. If you know a tree, it's during the dry times that it makes the hardest wood, right? The best wood is made in a tree that doesn't have a lot of water because it's really hard and super strong. That's desert times. God says, I I want you to know this. I want you to, to test you. I want you to get strong out there. That's it. Like the Chibar Canals, the caves, the deserts, that's what they do for us. They make us strong. They make us strong. And they give us hope because God shows up. And what you know about the desert is this, you cannot survive in the desert without somebody else helping you. That's what God says in Deuteronomy 8. You would not have survived out here if every day I did not feed you. The desert is where you realize I have to have God show up. Ezekiel realized if for me to have hope and make it in this exile refugee camp by the evil empire, God has to show up. God has to show up. If he doesn't, I'm doomed. Forget it. The desert, the other good part about the desert is this. It's hard to get in trouble in the desert. You can't go clubbing in the desert. Like there's something about the desert where the weight on your soul, it almost makes like, like 
sin impossible. There's almost like this, you just have an aversion to it because you're so focused in on what really, truly matters in life. That's deserts. That's desert. Maybe you're feeling that today, this week, this month. Maybe you're feeling lost like Ezekiel. Dreams, hopes, desires, marriage, kids, country. Maybe it's money. Money can cause problems, you know that? Having a lack of money is a problem. There's a saying, money talks. Do you know what it always says? Goodbye. That's what money says. It's always gonna be a problem. Get used to that. There's always, there's always these issues. We can all feel Ezekiel at some level, at some level. But it's in the desert, Deuteronomy 8, Genesis 28, Elijah, 1 Kings 18, Moses, Exodus 3, that God shows up. The only time God doesn't show up in a desert, guess when it is? Jesus, who shows up instead? Satan, think about that one for a while. That's a radical. Our desert (laughs) is so that God shows up. Jesus is when Satan shows up in his weakest, hardest time. We have no idea what Jesus went through to redeem us. Much more difficult than we can imagine. So I planned on not wearing my watch and doing all of Ezekiel chapter one. But this afternoon when I finished just this little section, I stopped because I thought, you know what? Most likely tonight, there are people that feel just like Ezekiel. Loss, hope being diminished, dreams being dashed, marriages that just seem impossible, kids that are, Genesis 6 kids. And you feel like going by a stinky canal and just crying like Ezekiel was doing. It's a desert for you. I felt that way. And so I stopped. And I thought, tonight, we just need to do one thing to finish. We need to pray for you. Those that are feeling that, Galatians 6.1 says that we get the opportunity to walk, to pray, to help, to say, God, show up. Do something like Ezekiel. Ezekiel's life has changed because of the Chibar Canal. This book, we would not have it if it was not for the bottom that Ezekiel hits and God showing up. So I want to take the opportunity to pray for you. If you're saying, you know what, tonight that's me. I feel like a Moses. I feel like an Elijah. I feel like a Jacob. I feel like an Ezekiel. I feel like a Gomer in in the book of Hosea. Same thing. It's all the same story. God, would you show up? Here's what I want you to do, and it's very hard, and I get that. I want you to stand up. When you stand up, I'm going to lay hands on you, and we're going to pray for you. And pray that an Ezekiel moment takes place for you, that God does something so brilliant and so amazing that it changes the rest of your life. Because what happens in the next couple of verses is this. It's called the Ruach storm, the glory storm. God's glory shows up to Ezekiel, and it's out of this world. And that's the prayer I want to pray for you. So if, it's that, if that's you, stand up, and we'll pray for you. So, I want hands on, as many hands as possible on each one of these people.
Father. We can know in our heads that the deserts are good, but they still hurt and they're still hard and there's still questions and there's still darkness and there's still worry and there's still fear. And so I pray for each person right now that feels like an Ezekiel. Dreams are being dashed. Hope has been lost. Hearts hurt. Tears are being shed. Worries overwhelm. Depression seems to be setting in. I pray that there would be a Ruach storm. That the comfort of your Holy Spirit would come with such power that hope would be kindled once again. That your power would be revealed. That strength would be given. That feet would be set upon solid rock foundations. That a light would break forth in great darkness. We know we can't stop deserts, stop exiles. We know we can't force green pastures and still waters to come more quickly, Lord. But we can pray for strength. And we can pray for power. And we can pray for joy. And we can pray that, Lord, in our weaknesses, you would be strong. And so that's what we pray. Would you be strong on our behalf? Would you walk with us? Would you show yourself to us? Would you stop the cycles that we even see in our own hearts? Would you be that other cycle that comes stronger and better? So grab each of these hearts and comfort. Grab each of these situations, Lord, and do something that breaks the mold do something that changes destinies. Do something like you did with Ezekiel, showing yourself strong on his behalf. That's what we pray this day, Lord. So bless, comfort, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.